Claire Valley. Claire Valley. Claire Valley. Claire Valley. Claire Valley Podcast. Claire Valley Podcast. Claire Valley Podcast. Claire Valley Podcast. You're listening. Claire Valley Podcast. Claire Valley Podcast. This is episode eight of the Claire Valley Podcast, keeping you informed on the latest council news, upcoming projects, and events in the Claire and Gilbert Valley's council area. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. Have you had the chance to walk any of the stages of the Wine and Wilderness Trail? The trail that meanders through the hills, the vineyards and the creeks of the Clare Valley. There was actually a bit of everything. It was a bit of up and down and there was very different um, sceneries. There was creeks, there was gum trees, there was hills. But the best thing about this stage is just the views. So many times we had 360 degrees views of the most amazing valley. Stage six of the Clare Valley Wine and Wilderness Trail was completed in May, where approximately 140 people walked the 14 kilometres and then rested their weary legs and celebrated at Paulette's with a band and a barbecue. Later, you'll hear how this project came to be and how it potentially could put Clare on the map to attract keen hikers nationwide. Also, another successful Clare Valley Gourmet Week has wrapped up. We'll get the lowdown on how it all went. But first, it's been a big month with numerous council meetings to discuss ongoing topics, one being the lease of the Clare Caravan Park. After a three-hour special meeting with the council's legal advisor, councillors voted to progress the 21-year lease of the land to Discovery Parks. The council's CEO, Dr Helen MacDonald. After much discussion and the opportunity to speak with our legal advisor who has been helping us through the negotiation but also the development of the lease, had the opportunity to explain particular clauses, then yes, the councillors decided that they were happy to move ahead and undertake the final decisions so that that lease can become active in the near future, I assume. So after all that... There's been no changes to the lease at all. Well, and it would be difficult to change the lease because council had already approved the lease at a meeting in December of 2021. So they'd already decided that and it was really just uh, the formalities of not having undertaken uh, community consultation around the inclusion of Catford Park. So that's where we halted that process and with the consent of Discovery, undertook the consultation or added that as an additional requirement for the lease um, and undertook that consultation and uh, that came back to council and council ultimately looked at that and it made its decision to to move forward. In the last podcast, you mentioned that the council was going to undertake a statutory review. This obviously didn't happen. What led to that change? Um, Yes, Council did take a decision to do a statutory and process review and then I think several councillors thought twice about this, reconsidered whether or not it was actually necessary and then we had... Because the idea was to get an independent lawyer involved. So you've just gone back to the Council's legal counsel in the end. Uh, In the end, yes. Some councillors couldn't understand why we would need to do this. So a rescission motion was brought to council that was accepted and there was a second resolution that was put to council which was to bring in our legal advisor for the development of the lease. Um, Okay, so what happens now? 
Well, the lease is still not active because there is one last thing that has to happen. So the lease was subject to a number of things under the deed of variation. And the last thing that has to happen is that Discovery need to get development approval. So they actually have planning approval, but they don't have development approval. So their proposals for what they want to, or additional infrastructure that they want to put into the park area and the so you're talking about area. the water park you're talking that's what yeah, you're referring to yeah. yeah so that has to go to the regional assessment panel and and be approved so they've yet to do that and that will be their next step and are you of the understanding that they've still factored that water park into their their budget and it's still on the cards to be completed by summer this year i do not have a confirmation from discovery that will happen i know when i spoke to them last week that they were going to look at their position but in all fairness to discovery they it was getting very late in the financial year in terms of them developing their budget and uh, commitments for the forthcoming financial year uh, hopefully we'll get confirmation of that in the the near future According to the Plains producer, Discovery Parks will aim to build the water park by Christmas this year, subject to receiving a development approval from the Mid-North Regional Assessment Panel. If you'd like to hear what was discussed in the special council meeting, the audio is available on the council's website. Moving on to the annual business plan and the budget for 2022-2023, being released for public consultation, uh, from June the 1st through to June the 22nd with the proposed plan and budget to be adopted at a special council meeting on the 4th of July. Let's look at the major points in the annual business plan and the budget for starters. I understand rates are going up this coming financial year. Um, yes, there will be a rate increase which is really covers CPI. So uh, council's committed to a 4.95% rate increase which is covers growth but also covers the expected inflation that's happened already. So that's what it is for the 2022-2023. And this increase may be more or less for the rate payer depending on the capital value of their property as well. That should be yes, definitely yes. stipulated. Yeah. yeah, yes. Just because there's a council's nominated a, a 4.95% rate increase, that doesn't automatically mean that's what happens to everybody's rates. It will vary from one property to another, uh, depending on what the changes have been in the capital value of that property and neighbouring property. So it's probably one of the more complex things that people have trouble understanding and people can certainly question what the value of general the state value of general says their property is worth and if they think it's unreasonable then they don't protest to council they need to um, raise their concerns with the value of general. Now you mentioned that rates are going up by 4.95 percent and that's in line with the CPI and also that the inflation rate of 5 percent was a lot higher than expected in the last financial year. Let's look at some of the major priorities for council this coming financial year. So what's going to be included in the budget? Yes, it sounds like we've got a big rate increase in comparison to some previous years, but it's really a steady state budget. There isn't anything super, super exciting. There is funding. Come on, Helen, you're supposed to sell it. 
<laughs> I'm trying to not get people too excited. There is funding for uh, an additional position for uh, works and infrastructure. So that is a new staff member. Council is looking to introduce a green waste collection in the second half of the year. So I know that there's people have been asking for that ever since I joined council and council have this time around um, added that in. There's a few other interesting things we've in terms of looking at repairing the, the Clare Town Hall stage. Hopefully we'll have enough funds to not just repair it but do something something that makes that space more usable uh, and flexible. There's also funding to uh, get a detailed design for Riverton to upgrade that, spruce that town hall up and hopefully make it a more attractive and usable space. Council decided to increase the funding for the peak bodies. Well, very exciting, um, the renewal of CWMS. So there's some general work that needs to be done on the waste disposal system, CWMS system. Oh, a council did at the last minute decide to include a small amount of funding so that it could commence with the wayfinding strategy. Uh, Just at the recent May meeting, the report for a piece of work that started last year about wayfinding, so wayfinding for tourism, looking at signage, essentially, tourism signage across the Clare and Gilbert Valleys district. And so there was a whole lot of recommendations that came out of that. And there's obviously signage that issues that need to be addressed by businesses that have own and put up signs. Um, But there's a, a number of things that council can do and so there's a small amount of money that's been included so that we can commence that project of removing, refreshing, replacing signs to help tu- tourists find their way around the Clare and Gilbert Valley. Do you know how much money's in- been that, included? There was uh, $15,000. How is the council sitting financially? We'll be having a small deficit this year and if you exclude the grant funding that goes or the final grant funding that goes to the Clare Sports Club for the upgrade of the Clare Oval infrastructure, then it's a a relatively modest deficit and our long-term financial plan shows that we'll have a deficit for the next three or four years but then uh, we will go into uh, surplus territory and certainly by the end of the 10 years then we'll have a pretty good cash position and council will be running a surplus. Council's in a, a good sustainable position. Is there anything that you're looking forward to, Dr McDonald, in relation to what the council can achieve in the next financial year? Is there anything in particular that you're excited about? Well, I think green waste. Um <laughs> <laughs> Who's not excited about green waste? <laughs> green waste is, uh, it's been so long coming and I know it's um, really wanted by quite a number of people in the community and it will will make life easier for people that are don't necessarily have transport to be able to take green waste to the transfer station but also it will alleviate that need for people to do that so they can just periodically place uh, a green waste bin out and makes it easier and it should make it easier in terms of council being able to manage the green waste. I think one of the things that I think is actually exciting, I'm not sure if the rest of the community will necessarily find it exciting, but we've had to take a step back with our stormwater. So we anticipated that we would have been 
um, having some major expenditure on stormwater infrastructure for Clare uh, in the coming financial year. But we had to pull back from that because since the, uh, the Clare Stormwater Management Plan was developed, there is now much higher quality LIDAR data which is basically mapping of the land. So it gives you a much higher quality of information to use in models to understand the impact of flooding. And so in, in some senses, the timing is not good because we were ready to construct. But on the other hand, it is handy because we'll be able to better test some of the models to ensure that the infrastructure that we're proposing to build will actually be effective and so it may show council either shouldn't be investing. So the, when we're talking about multi-million dollar projects, you want to go with as much certainty that what you're going to spend your money on is actually going to achieve what you want it to achieve. Or if it does nothing, then there's a good question about why you would even bother. So for me, that's quite an exciting project because it will give us much better certainty around that very huge investment that we need to make in stormwater infrastructure. And when is this investment going to start to well, come um, forward? We would anticipate that this next 12 months, so the next financial year, we'll be um, collecting that LIDAR data and incorporating it into the modelling so that then we can look at our implementation plan of what the structures were that were proposed to be built and are they correct or do they need to be modified. If we need to do modifications, then there might be additional time required for updating designs, but we would anticipate we would be, if all goes smoothly, then the 2023-24 financial year will be the year that we would start constructing. In the last podcast, we talked a lot about the Hale River feedlot. Wanting to know whether there is any update to that decision at this stage because we left it at, it was very much up in the air as to what was going to happen, whether this feedlot was going to expand, um, whether uh, it needed to have a new development application. Where is this decision at at the moment? Uh, well, there's no decision at the moment. Hale River has got legal advice and part of what they are required to do is to show that there has been ongoing use of that feedlot infrastructure and so there is no discontinuation of the use of that property as a feedlot. That was something they're required to prove um, and they've been going through that process of providing evidence that shows that. On the other side, for those people that would prefer not to have a feedlot in their midst, then they have obviously engaged a lawyer that is collecting information essentially from council wherever they can to show that there has been a discontinuance. That's essentially where it is. At some point, uh, the planning staff of council will need to take a decision about whether it's been discontinued or not. But at this point in time, yes, it's about each party providing the evidence required so that that decision can be made. Because to be clear, initially we were of the understanding that this operation was operating as a transfer facility. Now we're hearing that it's been operating as a feedlot the entire time. So what happened I can't answer that question. Okay. Um, I think that's um, for Hale River to answer. It's not inconceivable that it could have been doing both. It could have been primarily used as a transfer station but also been used as a, a feedlot as well. So that's what they need to be able to show, that it has been used as a feedlot. Dr Helen McDonald, thank you very much for your time and we'll catch you again next month. Thank you.
Did you make it to any events over the Gourmet Week? What a huge 10 days for wine and food producers in the Clare Valley. Six to 8,000 people made their way into the region, be it local regional people, people from Adelaide, and even interstaters, as there were 70 events on offer, double the amount of last year. It's also estimated the Clare Valley Gourmet Week generates almost $3 million to the local Clare and Gilbert Valley's council economy. I caught up with Belinda Heinrich, the Clare Valley Wine and Grape Association's Marketing and Events Coordinator, to get the update on how the week went and to see whether the Gourmet Week, opposed to the Gourmet Weekend, is Bill, everyone is feeling a bit exhausted, very relieved and happy. Um, it was a hugely successful 10 days in the Clare Valley for everybody involved. So six to 8,000 people attended. How many more events happened this year, say, compared to last year? So we had nearly double the amount of events listed this year, um, which was terrific. So we worked really hard to brand the 10 days into three sort of subsections. So the first weekend was the classic festival style weekend. Um, During the week, those five days, Monday to Friday, was what we called the Breathe It In Claire Experiential Week, where everybody um, could jump in and really soak up experience-driven events uh, like art classes, yoga and wine. There were so many different things. It was terrific. Um, And then that last weekend we branded Land of the Long Lunch. So quite a few people jumped on board and um, ran different wine long lunches throughout the region. So what's the reasoning behind segmenting it into threes? Is it just giving the consumer more of an idea of what they're expecting? Absolutely, Annabelle. And also targeting slightly different demographics so that first classic festival style weekend that really attracts a lot of the mid-north locals lots of netball football groups on buses obviously it's hard it used to be on the long weekend so the Saturday and Sunday were huge you know 10 years ago yeah but now it's that Saturday is sort of the bigger day local people can access the region on the buses plus we have the shuttle buses that we activate through the association here Um, And they travel throughout the region, so people have the opportunity to get on and off. But then moving on to the the midweek, people can come and stay in the region and really immerse themselves in Clare and what the wineries have to offer, learn, see, taste, smell, breathe it in. So where did people come from? Ah, look, all over. A lot of interstate visitors that had learnt about that midweek and the final weekend of Land of the Long Lunch um, had heard about it on social media. So we really ramped up our social media mm. activation this year I could, um, I could and tell. Invested, yeah. Yeah, invested in a website. So our reach was really global. You know, that's what World Wide Web, Web can it's do. It's the whole point. You know, it's the whole point. <laughs> so, um, it's because you didn't have a brochure. No, controversially, there was no yeah. brochure. Um, so obviously for sustainable reasons and also for for reporting reasons and and cost as well. The brochure, it was printed, it stayed within region um, or within South Australia at least and pretty much the minute it's printed, it's out of date. Mm. Um, and with COVID, that was even more challenging. People uh, were changing times of events, numbers and at the time that that would have to be signed off on, the government restrictions were still in place. 
So we decided to invest in building a website, which we'll continue to improve on in years to come. So the money that you saved with not having a brochure, you put back into the website and that website's going to be improved each year. Absolutely. Along with investing more in our social media activation. And when you say reporting, you're meaning that you will get feedback and you can actually monitor where and who is actually getting this information. Absolutely. With the brochure, you had no, no idea. We had no idea mm. who was the end user of the mm. brochure. Yeah. None at all. So with the website and with social media, we can target certain areas of Australia or South Australia. It just opens up, you know, the access mm. to what we're doing is opened up hugely. Because the other wine districts don't use it either, do they? they no, don't, they no. Don't a lot, most anymore. other wine regions now yeah. across Australia have... Yeah, have stopped using the brochures. So do you think people have come around then? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Are there still those people that still want a brochure? It's it's hard. I loved the brochure um, and I've kept many brochures from my years of going to Gourmet. But I think it's time for a change and, and I think it takes a while to get used to change but hopefully everybody learns to adopt this new way and and as I said, there's going to be more investment in the website which will make it much uh, user-friendly. We found this year with so many events being listed, it did become quite challenging to search through the Mm. website listings. But uh, next year, we'll be implementing um, some better search capabilities. So we can search by day, by venue, by meal, um, and as well as hopefully popping an itinerary builder in there. So basically, you can build your own brochure. We talked about how many more events you had this year. So how many events altogether occurred over the 10 days? Oh, goodness, Bill. <laughs> there were about 70 different events altogether. Wow. Yeah. So now that it's a 10-day program and you've talked about what parts of the week attracted different demographics, mm-hmm. so can we talk about how much people paid for tickets at some of these events? Look, the highest ticket price uh, was $500 a head and it was quite limited. I think there were about 25 tickets to that event and that sold out within days. Wow. Amazing. So did most events sell out? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Well, could you say all of them sold out? Uh, at least 90% of events sold out. And look, I think all of the long lunches sold out. What was the, the highlight for you or for wine and tourism and everything in the uh, valley? This year, um, the association invested and worked closely with the council actually on activating the closure of Burton Lane uh, and in collaboration with the lovely people at Seed Clare Valley. So for the first time in a long time, we held an official launch party um, where we had the Honourable Claire Scriven come and officially open the event on behalf of the Premier. We were able to have Executive Officer Rodney Harricks from SATC to that event as well. But it was just a terrific way to officially start the 10 days of events. And that um, was sold out as well. That was sold out, yep. Mm. And other highlights, um, our members really thought about their events this year and invested heavily in different ways to brand themselves. Um, Eldridge's did a terrific finale to the week with their Burning of the Barrels event, which I think will be an inaugural event, uh, an ongoing event. So, you know, there was some new things to come out of it. People thought about things a little differently. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with next year. What would you do differently next year? Anything Mm, different? What would I do differently next year? Look, I think this year, the level of events that, that were put on by members will hopefully give a guide and support to other members to activate more long lunches. So I think it was just getting that brief right to people about 
the long lunches and those experiences and giving them the courage and the conviction to implement those events mm. and know that they they will work people are coming and that they've got our support with the social media campaigns because there's a level of tickets there's a level of anxiety though isn't it when absolutely you hold and particularly like with covid yeah. you know it, yeah. it's yeah it's hard but that second part people are here to spend money and immerse themselves and i think that they're rewarded with people coming and leaving the region as brand ambassadors for Clare Valley and telling everyone how wonderful Clare is when they go home to wherever that may be. So it's great. It's good that um, you're getting that different demographic during the week because we're constantly hearing that we want Clare or the Clare Valley to be a premier Mm. food and wine location. And the only way that you're going to get to that point is if you're broadening your scope and absolutely. offering those high end is that is, is that your end yeah, game? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why yeah. we're trying to differentiate yeah. ourselves with this ten day format as well. As you yeah. know, it's only the second year we've we've rolled out with the ten day format. From all the results that we've seen, we'll continue on with the ten day format. And also the the problem with that first weekend is the accommodation. There's not a huge amount of accommodation in Clare, and it's at capacity. Oh, I was um, ask so about that. For, yeah. So for the rest of of the ten days, it gives an opportunity to extend other people extend their stay. Or the accommodation providers now have the opportunity to bank on people in the region for the whole 10 days. Bill, how many events did you go to in the end? Phew, I lost count. (laughs) So many. (laughs) It was terrific to go out there and see what everybody was doing and to support um, the members that have worked so hard. I had a ball. I was on a bus Saturday and Sunday at the festival with sponsors. SATC were in region on the Saturday and then at uh, naming rights partner southern cross Osterio, uh were in region on the sunday um so they were two busy days i went to a couple of dinners i went to the yoga and wine at seven hill yeah i had a great time this was your first year at the helm it was <laughs> obviously there's a many more gourmets to come congratulations on a, obviously a successful event and you must be so relieved and so happy and i guess you're starting to gear up for next year I'm very relieved I'm very (laughs) exhausted but I'm absolutely thrilled and yes planning is in place for next year already Um, we've got a debrief coming up with the producers we're going to set the dates for next year and um, yeah get the wheels in motion already that's Belinda Heinrich Clare Valley Wine and Grape Association's marketing and events coordinator Clare Valley Podcast Clare Valley Podcast you're listening Clare Valley Podcast Clare Valley Podcast Around 140 people hiked Stage 6 of the Clare Valley Wine and Wilderness Trail on May the 1st. This is the third stage that's been opened with Stage 1 and Stage 2 already being enjoyed by hikers. The Wine and Wilderness Trail aims to be a 110-kilometre walking trail around the Clare Valley, showcasing the region's premium wine and food industries as well as the beautiful natural and rural landscapes. Most of the trail is through private property, meandering through bushland, rolling hills, creeks and vineyards. Stage 6 was formally opened by Mark and Kirsty Roderick of the Lang Foundation, who are the major sponsors of the project, followed by a welcome to country by Pat Weirer-Reed. Tim Grigg and Michael Nugent are the founders of the Clare Valley Wine and Wilderness Trail. I caught up with them during the Stage 6 celebrations to find out how this project came to be. Michael's been a keen hiker for a long time and 
often invited me along to his adventures. So he, about 15 years ago, I think, organised a multi-day hiking trip around the Clare Valley, which he did with um, some friends and, and some kids, and we were involved in that. And then sometime after that, I remember Michael saying to me, it would, wouldn't it be great if we could organise a, a hiking trail around the Clare Valley on an, in an official setup, sort of a bit like the Heisen Trail? Um, but that was probably 10 years ago. I agreed that it would be great. Nothing really much happened for a long time. But actually, COVID, COVID came along. We all had a lot of time. So, we, so I think Michael said, look, well, why don't we give that a crack now? And so that's what we did. So, Michael, you're a keen hiker. You've done a fair amount of hiking, I presume, around the country and around the world, would you say? Yeah, no, I've been lucky enough to, to get out to a lot of states in Australia and countries in the world and lived in UK and Ireland and lots of walking over there and in Europe, but How would you rate this, this hike then compared to what you've been on? It's definitely the best in the world. <laughs> no, but we, seriously, we'd love, love to see this become a world-class destination and, and we really think that Clare Valley has what it takes. The countryside's beautiful and pristine and we've been lucky enough to have landowners and landholders allow us to walk through their best bits as well. And so put that together with wine and the gourmet and the B&Bs and the, you know, I think that this could really, you know, we, we just get more and more excited, don't we, about the whole... Yeah, yeah, yeah the, whole, the whole thing's just gathering momentum. You know, in the early days we were knocking on people's doors, sort of saying, can we, can we do this? And we've flipped it and now we've got landholders coming to us saying, can we be, please be part of it? We've got people asking us, can they please join the committee? Can they please help in, in other ways? So Why do you think it's flipped? Why do you think there was this, all of a sudden there was this traction where, oh, hey, I want to be a part of it? What was the reason? Look, it's a great concept. Everyone, I think, enjoys sharing something that's special and beautiful with other people and the Clare Valley's a special and beautiful place and I think we're all proud to live here and we a lot of people like to share that and so this is really this is a way of doing that I guess yeah. So how did you come up with the map and, and where to go and, and where to map it out and how did you approach these landholders in the first place so practically how did it all come together? Yeah well, look Tim's very good with maps I'll, I'll give him that but roughly we basically looked around the valley and picked out the best chunks and thought you know we've got to hook them all up together and then by trying to join the dots oh well then maybe we could go across this ridge or through here who owns it so the council have been really good at helping us find out who who the landholders are and then you know as Tim said we door knock and largely people have just been once they worked out that we weren't real weirdos they yeah they, you know there was a little bit of suspicion at the, at the start but but then people have heard of it now, so they go, oh, yeah, yeah, no worries. So. Because I can imagine, you know, you're allowing strangers onto their private land and, and there's also that essential biosecurity issue as well that probably would have crossed landholders' minds. Was that an issue at the, in the beginning? Uh, for sure, it's a concern. You know, you've got two biosecurity issues in the Clare Valley, I guess. One is vineyards, so phylloxera. The trail misses as much vineyard as we can. It goes close to some but we've got sort of signage in place to, to try and ensure that people don't so go into the vineyard. So we certainly don't want to be responsible for introducing phylloxera to the Clare Valley. That wouldn't be a good look. The other issues are, uh, you know, sheep and, and, and cattle. We've had some discussions around that. However, it, it, it appears that hikers 
you know, don't really spread that. There was, you know, we had some people looking into some um, scientific literature from um, walking trails over in, say, England, where there's a lot of this uh, access to sort of private sort of farmland and there was no evidence of any of this uh, stuff being spread by hikers. In, in reality, it's, it's not borne out by the evidence, I think. Yep. So how many kilometres all up will the entire trail be? About 110, so we've divided it up into six stages, roughly 15 to 20 kilometres each. We've Now this is stage six, the last stage, but we haven't done stages three, four and five, so we're only halfway through, which is a bit daunting, but as Tim said, more and more people are putting their hand up to help out, and we, we hope probably to finish stages four and five by the end of this walking season, you know, October, November, and then maybe open the whole lot this time next year. But so how do people find, how can people access the map? So we've got a website where you can download the map from the website. The, uh, the visitor centre in Clare have been very helpful, so they, they're printing the maps for us and giving those to visitors. Also got it available on some mapping apps, so Avenza is an app that, uh, where you can download the map and, you know, it's just like a GPS enabled sort of thing. So we've sort of, the, the maps are available, you know, through a variety of sources, I guess. I mean, in the past, people would have had giant paper maps in their backpacks, and but yeah, with phones and internet and GPS and all that sort of stuff, it's really easy. So how many landholders all up are included in this trail? This, this section of the trail, I think we've got 11 private landholders. The first section, uh, we only had two, but we've revamped that, and there's probably five or six now and then section two there'd be another 10 so that's for half the trail you know that's maybe 30 30 to 40 landholders for half the trail so there's a lot of the, the community's really got behind this in a big way and it's 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 great to see i just recognize everybody who's helped and everyone who's part of it from landholders to volunteers to you know everyone who's who's helping you know support the thing really that's one of the actually really nice sort of surprising things that I've had from um, working on this project. For example, the you know, working with the men's shed. So the men's shed is a great concept which uh, enables these sort of older blokes to get out of the house and do some, you know, bang some stuff together once a week. So the fact that we've been able to give them a, a task to complete, which is really something that we need. So they banged up all the signs? Well, they've been banging up, they've been create, uh, building the fence styles for us. So little things like that, like you can see that by us uh, giving them those jobs, they, they, they just love it. And the Lions Club are out there helping us and the Mintero Tennis Club out here cooking barbecues. And so, no, just, so really just, just a huge thank you to everybody who's, who's part of it, really. Did you get much financial assistance in developing it? Well, our major sponsors, um, the Lang Foundation and Mark Roderick, whose wife Kirsty, well, they're both integral to that that organisation. They've they've been very generous, and they've basically taken a lot of worry about funding out of you know it's it's hard enough getting the trail built, let alone worrying about paying for it. And so they've been fantastic, and uh, the council have been good. They've chucked in a bit of funding and uh, lions, and and some private people have from left field corners have been very generous as well so yeah we've been lucky. Do you mind if I ask you how much it actually has cost to actually put it together? It's probably cost about 30,000, 30 to 40,000 over the first two years and yeah maybe another 20 to finish it off Um, but then there'll be maintenance and there's ongoing insurance costs so we yeah. Congratulations on a great project and making it a success so far. Congratulations to you both.
Thanks, Annabelle, and thanks for spreading the word. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm Matt Paulette, owner of Paulette Wines. What do you think of the whole concept of the Wine and Wilderness Trail? Because I understand that you've been involved, well, close to the beginning. Yeah, no, we've uh, always put our hand up to help the community. And when Nudge and uh, Tim came along and asked uh, if they could use our property, it was always, yes, go for it. So it's open to the public. Uh, they come through and experience the, uh, the beauty of Polish River and Paulette Wines. So why were you so open to it? Why were you so open to you know all these random hikers coming onto your property? Well, I think Clare, we have the Reasoning Trail, which is really good. Um, brings a lot of tourists to Clare. And the Wilderness Trail here just opens up some private land. And it's pretty spectacular land. You walk through uh, native gum trees and you see all the sheep and cattle and just uh, get open up to the experience of uh, private property. Were you at all concerned about, the, say, biosecurity threat or anything like that? Or the uh, risk? Yeah, there's always a risk. Um, we spoke a little bit of some of our Waterville vineyards, uh, just with people having access. But uh, I think the, the walkers that come through are, are really respectful of private property and the signs and all that sort of biosecurity that we have up. And uh, they just appreciate it and we appreciate them not Doing the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, doing the wrong thing, that's right. So um, that threat is always there, but we're, we're very comfortable and sit quite happy, happily with that. And I guess, you know, the great thing for you guys being a tourist and a, a tourism operation and a winery, everyone gets to finish up here and have a glass of wine, have some lunch after walking 14 kilometres. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's another thing of also walking through our land is that they do end up here at the, the winery restaurant and um, can sit over and look over where they've walked and um, talk about the their adventures for the day and uh, enjoy a nice glass of Clear Valley wine. So, are you a hiker, Matt? <laughs> well, this is not TV. Uh, I haven't walked yet, but uh, we do need to do the walk, yes, for sure. Hi, I'm Bianca Grigg and I'm from the Clare Valley. I'm very lucky to live in Sevenhill. Bianca, you have just done stage six of the Wine and Wilderness Trail. How was today? It was awesome. It was the best day. We just had perfect weather. And, and it ended up with beautiful food that actually made me climb up that last hill just that little bit faster, had the best buns, Paulette's just did the, the best meals and the girls from the Mintero Tennis Club are just amazing. So how was the trail? Is it difficult, easy, moderate? I mean, for anybody who wants to embark on this, what's it like? There was actually a bit of everything. It was a bit of up and down and there was very different um, sceneries. There was creeks, there was gum trees, there was hills. But the best thing about this stage is just the views. So many times we had 360 degrees views of the most amazing valley. Annie, what do you think? How's your legs today? The legs were feeling it definitely coming up that last little section. Love walking in the valley, um, love being a part of the committee. It's just really exciting being able to build something, yeah, for the future. And, and I think the good thing about the trail is meeting everyone on the way and, and meeting like-minded people that enjoy doing the same thing. And it's so nice to share this beautiful valley with other people. Nice. And can kids go along? Is it easier for kids? good I think kids you just give them a few jubes and they're happy aren't they you just give them a bit of energy on the way <laughs> yeah and uh, I heard a few people that um, picked up their kids halfway through or had someone to pick them up halfway through because it's it's all in stages and you go uh, past lots of cellar doors so there's always a chance of you know getting the grandparents to pick them up or something like that so yeah it works well 
also goes past cellar doors, so you've got an option of stepping in and having a glass. Yeah, yeah, we did a few wine tastings on the way. We stopped at um, Good Catholic Girl and then at Seven Hill Cellars and, yeah. I don't know about carrying bottles of wine on the track, but the tastings were good. (laughs) Bianca Grigg and Annie Pitt finishing that story. So get a group of friends together and hike one of the stages of the Wine and Wilderness Trail and bask in the natural beauty of the Clare Valley while stopping in at cellar doors along the way. If you'd like to find out more about the Wine and Wilderness Trail and download the maps, there is a website, cvwt.com.au. All the details are in my show notes. And just for interest, Stage 1 is from Clare to Armagh and Stage 2 is from Armagh to Spring Gully. Follow this group on Facebook to see updates on future trail stages. That's it for another episode of the Clare Valley Podcast. Just a reminder, if there is anything you would like covered in this podcast, please don't hesitate to get in contact. This podcast is brought to you by the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. I'll catch you soon.